as we see particularly three covenant children uh, professing a credible profession of faith. I'm just, I'm just reminded, even as I was interacting with those three, particularly the, the three children that are coming this afternoon, um, just how exciting it was um, to see God working in their lives. And particularly, I was encouraged to see that they had really had opportunity to wrestle with their faith. Uh, each three of these men, young men, as I met with them over at my house uh, uh, earlier this week, that were, were, we articulated their journey, remembering a time when I'd met with them in their bedrooms uh, a couple of years ago, and and just seeing the way which they had grappled with their faith. And I was, and I remember encouraging them, thinking about what lies ahead of them, what lies ahead of us, uh, to continue that pursuit of of understanding the faith, all the more so in light of what awaits us. And that brings me to this passage today especially. For I come to this passage and I'm, I'm, I find myself deeply sympathetic to Paul. Um, throughout, I'm beginning to understand Paul's concern in this, this epistle. As I've been going deeper and deeper into this epistle every week, I begin to understand he is deeply worried. And I find myself resonating with this worry, with this anxiety for the church. In his day, of course, the church of Ephesus. In my day, the church, uh, the American church, if you will, the church of New Haven. This church. Particularly, I'm, I'm hearing him speak on themes that I find resonating within myself that, that we need to be talking about as well. What am I talking about here? Well, Paul, you see, is concerned for this flagship church plan in Ephesus and what is happening in their lives, particularly how there is a kind of subjectivization going on in their experience or in their understanding of Christian faith. We find that over and over again because over and over again we hear him relating to these people who are, who are more and more trusting their emotions and trusting their experiences and and that has opened up a vacuum, and for whatever uh, context there was there, pluralism and various other things that were going on, there's been this opening for false teachers to come in and for, for there to be these, quote, silly myths and speculations that are now beginning to govern people's lives. He is over and over and over again. It's interesting to see that what we see today in our passage is is returning to the theme that began this book, or this this epistle. Over and over and over again, stressing that people need to go back and study. That's one way to say it. That these times, these last days, are days wherein we need to study. Why? Because there is a great need for there to be great conviction in opposition to what will be great persecution. And I see that coming to us, and particularly to our children, and particularly to their grand, our grandchildren. You see, in our day, we live in this post-enlightenment kind of, of context where there was a great turn in pre-enlightenment and post-enlightenment towards subjectivism coupled with what we call the Cartesian Revolution, where where philosophically there was this great turn towards knowledge and how we know things which starts with knowing ourselves this quote cartesian revolution opened up the pandora's box for an incredible impulse of subjectivism that is 
trusting in my own self, my experiences, my emotions, my own subjectivity, if you will. And of course, that also is coupled with a philosophical movement that lost confidence in a source of facts called revelation. Increasingly through empiricism and through other various rationalistic sciences, uh, we began to distrust any kind of knowledge that could not be empirically verified. Today we call that often the scientific method. You see, with this post-enlightenment rise of, of, of secularism, there was also a post-enlightenment rise of the academy. A guy named James, uh, Bruce uh, Kuklick wrote this book, The Rise of Philosophy, and in it he just has a chapter called The Professionalization of Theology. That is a movement that he describes in American history wherein the church was displaced with the academy for being the guardian of theology. And what that did was it removed the congregation from that very precious stewardship. The congregation got displaced by the scholar expert. And therefore there was another acid, there was another culprit from individualism to subjectivism to this Cartesian revolution and then the professionalization of theology where now church people don't feel that they have a responsibility to do it and to hold their teachers accountable for how they do it. And then you layer on top of that populism. What Nathan Hatch has described, democratization of American Christianity. And, and we see over and over now that, that truth becomes that which is popular. Where we discern truth by people's feet. We discern truth by where it is popular to hear it. And then, of course, the rise of scientism where facts are reduced, again, empirically verified knowledge. Now, that's a mouthful. But what I'm telling you is, if you were to go back to the first century of Paul, while there were different factors, we see the same thing happening in Ephesus. Then it was a kind of Jewish-inspired or or coupled with Gnosticism. And I'm not going to bore you with what all that means. There was this incredible rise of pluralism as there was a kind of globalization, ironically, taking place in the era of Paul, where these great centers or cities had become a pluralistic context where people were being engaged with with many religions and many faiths. And of course, there was an orthodoxy of, of sorts, the orthodoxy of Rome. And in this context, we find that Paul is worried. He is concerned for this church. That is to say that they would be able to endure that generation because the church, particularly in Ephesus that he's concerned about, had grown lazy, if you will, or unaware in a way that they didn't see how important it would be. So what do we have here in this passage? As a result, we see how it is that Paul again says, it repeats what he said in the first chapter, and the familiar concern that we hear today as much as we hear in Paul's day, he is concerned for irreverent 
and silly myths that are beginning to inform and rule and govern people's lives in Ephesus. Prophetically expected by Paul in the last days, he reminds them in 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but rather desiring to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. Notice carefully the words, passions, not convictions. Notice ear tickling, that is, that which gives me a, a positive emotion or an experience, not that which is rooted and grounded in truth. And he calls this kind of teaching, which is very, very, I mean, you could just rip this phrase right out and say, American religion in 2018. And he's concerned. There is this malignant presence of false teaching then that is that has inserted itself, driven by those impulses of subjectivism and, and individualism and populism and, and wanting ears to be tickled. And yes, you grow a church that way. And yes, you appeal to their passions. You carefully choreograph a service in order to make the passions come alive. You will grow a church that way. It's just amazing to me how things don't change. We think we're so unique. But this is what Paul is encountering. And so we have here this great command in, in, the, in this chapter and throughout Ephesus, I mean, Timothy. First of all, in chapter 1, he tells Timothy that he's to remain in Ephesus so that they may charge certain persons to teach different, who are teaching different doctrines. He's supposed to go and rebuke them, to call them out and say, that's not true. No matter how much it sells, that's not true. These certain persons were told by swerving from these things have wandered away into vain, there it is, that word, these vain, that is, empty discussions. Discussions without content, discussions without truth and substance. Desiring to be teachers of the law, they don't understand what they're talking about, says Paul. But what's scary to Paul is that this church, probably his most endeared church, a church where he spent three years, that they don't even know the difference. They've wandered themselves away so much. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the truth or the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. You see, the general principle is that good Christians and especially good ministers do not speculate about matters. They don't teach that which may necessarily arouse the passions. They teach the truth. Congregants that Paul desires in Ephesus are congregants who would, who would study what is taught them, that they would hold those who teach them accountable to the truth. And so you have this recurring mandate. Again, it's becoming a familiar theme if you've been walking through this, this epistle. Verse 6, so put these things before the brothers. Now, that's important to notice how he phrases it. What does Paul mean by put these things before the brothers? Well, verse 11, he tells us to command and to teach sound doctrine. 
to command and teach. That is the necessity of teaching in the church. It's if direct contrast and relevant to the myths of false teaching that is being present. Again, Titus 1.14 describes the same situation there in Crete. For they were a people who were devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. First Timothy 6 is going to say it again. O Timothy, guard the deposit. This deposit of faith. It's, think about it. He's given the analogy of like a, a sacred jewel that you'd put in a, a safe box. Or where you would put your last will and testament, if you will. In this safe box. He says, guard this deposit of the faith. Notice the article there. The faith, that body, that corpus of, of truth that we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all that, that involves that and supports that to make it our conviction, not just our immediately gratifying idea. What are these things then? Verse 7, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrines that you have heard from me. That's a classic phrase there from Paul. He says those kind of things all over the place. That you've been trained. Now I want you to notice here, who is he talking to? He's talking to Timothy the pastor, but but clearly he says you're to teach it to the brothers. Now that's just a, a, a way of describing the laity, both women and men, of course. The laity, that you're to teach it to the people that you've been entrusted to. Now, what does that assume? It would assume that there's a people with an appetite for it. May I even say a tolerance for it? It assumes a pastor who's not going to back down when it's not popular. Paul will say, teach these truths in season and out of season. When it's popular and when it's not, you teach it. This is so convicting to me. Uh, It's so tempting to want, in the name of the gospel, to grow your church. And sure, we should be laboring. Since the 25 years I've been here, I can just think of nothing I've labored more with in my mind than how do you move our congregation and how do we move our Christianity to a to a kind of, of confessionally based Christianity, one that, that really is discerning and studying and striving for the truth, and yet to do so in a manner that doesn't, you know, prevent us from, from reaching the lost. It's an incredible tension, but I think it's one that we're called to solve. To solve, not by going one way or the other. So to who the brethren... Then he uses this word training. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul uses this. In the English, you'll notice it shows up twice, if you were listening to the passage. But there's two different words, both translated in English, training. And you'll notice especially two times then, verse, the first one in verse 6, training there is the word that's from the context of child rearing. That is, to nurture them. It's literally translated in other passages, to nurture them. Again, the source of such spiritual nourishment is the truths, the words of the faith, as Paul has described them. But here, the picture is a kind of homeschooling environment. Where there's, you can just imagine this word, this nurturing parental word. 
where Timothy is called as a pastor to be nurturing the faith in them. Now, I want you to imagine, what would that look like? Is that something you do just on Sunday with a 35-minute sermon? This nurturing, this teaching, this kind of life-on-life, homeschooling, if you will, that he has in his head by metaphor? I mean, you can just imagine conversations. Again, the kind that we have when, when someone becomes a new member and we sit down and one of those, those are maybe one of the most important consultations or things that I know that I do as a pastor. When I meet with someone who wants to join, and usually those are hour, two hour long meetings. I went to the Divinity School, met with the, callers, the, uh, the Reeds this week, and, and we were just having a blast. Same thing with the Calruses in my study earlier this week. We were having a blast because very quickly we began to realize, you know, as we're just, as we're going deep into the things, you know, what, well, what, what, how would you believe that? I mean, let's get the sparks going. I, I know exactly what Paul's talking about here. This nurturing the truth when you're, you're in a home, you're in a one-on-one, you're having coffee and, and you're, and you're engaging the, the doubt, the doubt that God by his providence puts into us in order that we might stay alive spiritually. I said that to someone this week. I said, this person asked about a particular doubt they had in, in this context. And I said, well, you know, there's two kinds of doubt. There's a cynical doubt. There's a doubt that's trying to push God away. But then there's another kind of doubt, which I call a skeptical doubt. I know that's just a turn of phrase. It probably doesn't mean what I'm saying. But the point being that in that kind of a doubt, I'm talking about someone who who wants to believe but is struggling to believe it. And I say, oh, I pray, God, you will always have doubts like that. And they go, really? I was thinking I didn't have it. No. That's faith-seeking understanding. You're dead if you don't have doubts. Do you have doubts? Do you have those kind of doubts that that says, you know, can I really believe this? I, I told them, I said, Honestly, and I'm not lying, probably at least once a year, i got to go back to do I really believe in God. That's just a crazy, crazy thing to believe in, if you stop and think about it. Do I really believe in God? Do I really believe in the resurrection? Do I really believe that, that there's this, this eternal life called heaven and hell? Do I really believe that, that this contract was established that leads to justification by grace through faith, and is that right that we would have an executive head that could represent me in a contract like that? Oh, I could go on and on. It's, I cannot convey this word training. Nurture. You'll notice language later, and I'm going to emphasize it in a minute, but the other word before I get there, he, he doubles down. Okay, imagine this nurturing environment. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about a kind of of teaching that gets down into the weeds of people's doubts and people's concerns the way a mother or father gets into the weeds of their children and their questions and their doubts and, and the things which they're struggling with. But you, adult, are that child. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten the doubts? Are you still alive with the spark of questioning the spark that wants to know and to know more and to know more. Paul is assuming that in this word training in a nurturing sense. But the second use of this word is taken now out of an athletic context. 
train yourselves. That is the gymnasia word. It literally is the word we use the gymnasium from. And there, of course, he has in mind this great athlete who finds it worthy and worthwhile to train his body. And imagine what an athlete does. Think of the discipline. Think of of what he has in his mind. Getting up early in the morning. I don't know what kind of athlete he has in his mind, but getting up early before class. Some of you student athletes know what I'm talking about. Where you go and you work out before you go do your work. Then you come back and you train and you train and you train and you practice and you practice and you practice. You take Now, what is Paul thinking of here? He's thinking of this amazing uh, program. It's a time to study, is what Paul's saying. Notice the language that he uses. He gives three sort of adjectival or adverbial, actually, uh, sort of, of, of descriptions of this training, the kind of training he's talking about. One is a word for pers- persistence. He says, do not neglect the gift that you have, and he goes on to say, practice these things, immerse yourself in these things, and persist in these things. Three times, the same thing. I don't know about you, but when, when I start preaching like that, there's something going on in my heart. And I just can't seem, you know, some people say, well, you kind of start using a lot of words. And I said, I know, because I just, I don't know how to communicate it enough. So that's what Paul's doing here. I mean, one sentence there. (laughs) Practice. Immerse. Persist. That's the kind of stuff I would hear from a coach. That's the kind of stuff I would hear from someone who who really was going to push me to my limits in order to be trained. But here, Paul is talking about training in the doctrines of faith. He uses a second word that refers to just the labor or the laboriousness of it. For to this end, we toil and strive. I mean, I'm still in one verse, I mean, one passage with six verses here. All this language piling up. For this purpose, we toil and we strive. Of course, Acts 20, 20. Paul says it this way, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house. There it is. It was done nurturingly, home to home, house to house, person to person, coffee break to coffee break. It was being done publicly, and it was a lot of work. For pastors... There are a couple of planners. I see a couple in here. Find me a passage in Scripture. Find me a place in Scripture where anything that we do, according to our job description, is described like this. Find me a passage in Scripture where all, I mean, one of the things we have today, and you as a congregation need to help us out a little bit, but, but you know, what is the job description of a pastor church planner? Well, the problem is no one wants to nail it down. Even in our tradition, we don't have it nailed down. And it leaves us open to the job description of every individual and what they have for you. It's, it's a great crisis, believe me. It burns pastors out like that. Everybody has a job description for their pastor. 
But if I could find one, this would be at least a top two. I don't know of anywhere in the scripture where this kind of language is applied to what a pastor, church planter should be doing. I really don't. Of all the things we do, this is the kind of language, persevering language, laborious language. And then third, notice he gets towards the end of the chapter to self-examination again. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teachings. And then he relates how important that is for the sake of those who will hear you teach and who will be under your teaching. Again, two times this week, I've talked to someone about the vital role of doubt. The vital role of that spark By God's providence, it could be a car wreck. It could be anything, but something sparks a doubt. And that is God saying, I want you to come alive in your understanding of me. I want you to grow more intimate in your understanding of me. There's something he's wanting you to study. It's interesting, and as we think about this passage that Paul has just given to us, to think about the contrast that Paul must have had in his mind. Because he is worried because Ephesus at this time, for all the factors known, have moved away from this kind of Christianity. Thus, the purpose of this letter, to move them back to it. And in his mind, I suspect he had these scenes, these These yesteryear moments, as we go back to the book of Acts, it's interesting how many times this passage shows up, like in chapter 1, verse 14. And all these, with one accord, were devoting, that word devoting, devoting. Now, what does it mean to be devoting yourself to something? I see people just grinding it out. I see people who are really putting their minds to it and asking questions and off they go. They're devoting. It says, it says, and all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and the men, Mary of Jesus and all these people he talks about, and the brothers. So it goes through all the men and women that are doing this, devoting themselves to prayer and to the apostles' teaching. Acts chapter 2, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread into prayers. Acts chapter 6, but we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word, says the people in chapter 6. The people. Acts 17, we have this description of what Paul did to, quote, train the faith. It says Paul went in, as was his custom, so this was his habit, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. That's really interesting. What would that Sunday have looked like, I wonder? He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining to them and proving to them that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. I'm hearing a public oration of sorts from the scripture being read and publicly articulated, and now I'm hearing maybe hours, hours of Q&A and conversation. We have one scene 
where it went late into the night and people were literally, a person fell out of the window because they fell asleep. That's the image that Paul has. And he's thinking, Ephesians, oh, that you would go back to those days. Devoting yourself to the teaching. He goes on in this passage a couple of verses later to describe the Bereans. They received the word, we're told, with all eagerness. Examining the scriptures every day, daily, to see if what the apostles were saying was true. I love that. That is an engaged congregation who understands what Paul is teaching later in this very chapter, in this very book that we're on now, that the church is the pillar and bulwark of the church. You're the church. Do you know so goes a congregation, so goes orthodoxy? The temptation is probably just too great. For a congregation, you have so much power. For if you want it, if you demand it, your pastors will be forced <laughs> to give it to you, lest you vote with your feet. But if you vote with your feet for something else, the temptation is, of course, for pastors to give you something else. At least the bad ones, I'll just call them out. The bad ones will do it. And that's what this is about in this passage. It's an amazing passage that just incredibly feels relevant. Paul understands what he's saying. And so what does he do next? He gives them a metaphor. He kind of, in order to to try to drive home the necessity of of this hard training, this diligent study that that is going to be necessary for them, he says this, and I'll read it again. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life as well as the life to come. This saying, what he just said, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive. Here again, we have this very important phrase. This saying is a trustworthy saying. What he's saying is this, guys, I mean, think about, I mean, how relevant is this today? How much devotion do you have to your bodily health? I mean, how much do you study recipes? And how much do you study whole foods? And how much do you study nutrition? And some of us should study it more. I get you. How many of us are willing to make great sacrifices to go to the gym, to get on a bike, to take a long walk? And Paul is saying, that has some value. But if you compare the work you put into your body with the value concerning the work you would put in to your confessing beliefs and forming those beliefs so as they become convictions in your soul, it's not even comparable, he says. For one is temporal and one's eternal. And that's his point. Let me close this way. It is a time to study CPC, New Haven. It's a time to really rethink our values and our time and the way we use our time and our programming in this church 
how we teach a theology class, how we teach, a, do a sermon, and, and how we interact with that sermon afterwards, how we teach a Sunday school class, it's time to study. It's time to really reevaluate what Paul is saying here in an age that is just swiftly moving in the very direction that Paul warns. Again, utilizing the different words, Paul will insist that to remain faithful in the present age will require a persistent, laborious, self-reflective commitment in scriptures based on biblical training. In modernity, a Christian teaching was challenged by rationalistic and scientific dogmatism during the enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries. It was thought that a new era of unlimited human potential would be unleashed. Superstition then would become beaten down under the feet of reason. Reliances on one's own experience and conviction would drive out the barbarian tribes of religious and replace it with a secular university. Wars of religion, it was believed, would be disappearing in a world dominated by sensible agnosticism. And now truth was what scientists and philosophers knew while religious people were allowed only an opinion. Notice the turn, not a conviction. The former claimed the public realm, the latter, that is, religious people, were to be allowed whatever private religious opinions that suited them as long as they tolerated everyone else's. Sound familiar? I love this quote that I put in before the service. T.S. Eliot, in 1920, asked, where is the life we have lost in living? I love the irony of this. Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowing? Where is the knowing we have lost in the information? The cycles of heaven in 20 centuries, and we can now say 21, bring us further from God and nearer to the dust. Let me put it this way. Do you really believe this analysis that I'm giving you about where we are today in Christianity? Well, consider this. Have you ever read a populist preacher like, say, George Whitfield? Have any of you ever looked at one of his sermons? Preached to a people who not one of them had a formal education? Not one of them, the people in the masses, they didn't, they hardly even, they would have had a grammar school style training. But high school, college, graduate degrees, postgraduate degrees, doctorates, that was reserved for the, the most high level of intelligentsia. Listen to their sermons. Look at the complexity. Look at the questions that are being raised. Look at the the, the nature of the conversation and the content of it. Or go back to the first century and read Romans again. And to think that this book was preached to congregations. Incredibly mind-blowing theology. Grounded in a redemptive history that preceded them. Or go back to the Ecclesiastes. Go back to the Psalms. Go back to the writings of Moses. 
not two, but three, four thousand years ago. And then walk into a common, ordinary, everyday, post-enlightenment Christendom church. If you're thinking about this, it should scare the bejeebies out of you. And especially our kids. And especially our grandkids. How is it that they will endure as we become increasingly secular? Tertullian wrote, one of the great martyrs, we are publicly accused of being atheists and criminals who are guilty of high treason. Increasingly, we as Christians will probably be the heretics. I see it already. Values that we have, teachings that we have, and people look at us and go, huh? Wake up in the 21st century, pastor. You believe this? Really? You believe this ancient, archaic thing? Imagine your grandkids. Where's this going? What kind of a faith must they have to endure that kind of world? In AD 177, Ethagorias reported, quote, whenever the Christians proclaim that there is only one God and he is only known in Christ, a law is put in force against us. The problem was never they believed in God or they believed in Jesus Christ. The problem was that they were not pluralistic in their final religious belief. The one God, the one Lord, Jesus Christ, got them killed. I see a day, honestly, not to be overdramatic, but really, what's the trend going towards now? Polycarp, a disciple of St. John, was urged by the chief of police to renounce his beliefs And he said this, how can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Hear my frank confession, sir. And Polycarp told the official, I am a Christian. If you are willing to learn what Christian is, set a time at which you can hear me teach you. Refusing this offer, the official offered one last warning. The Polycarp answered, You threaten me with fire that burns but for an hour and goes out after a short time. For you do do not know the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment for the godless. Why do you wait? Bring on what you will. That was a real man in a real time. How did he get to that kind of faith? Do you think Twaddle got him there? Do you think a, a, this man who could come to this place in his life had not studied what he believed to form a conviction that, by God, I do believe it, I really do believe it, and I understand it? We come to a table. This is a crazy table. We are confessing that this man is both God and man. Really? Are you crazy? We're confessing that he, he suffered not just a martyr's death, but he suffered a sinner's death. 
That is a death that is eternal. That in his eternal nature as God, he could satisfy the eternal judgment of God. And what's even more preposterous about this table is that we believe that God is justified in sending you and me to everlasting hell. What do you know? What have you studied that would bring you to the conviction that that's true? This is the stuff that we need to talk about as as people are coming to profess faith in Christ. This is the stuff that we need to keep thinking about. For I don't know about you, but if, if my perception of sin is still left in the embryonic first grade level that I send when I want an iPad, somehow that's not going to match up when I believe that a God is justified to sending me hell because I wanted an iPad. Do you understand sin to where you could say with a, a heart of agreement, wow, I do that? Then yes, if God is God, And if I am this, I really would deserve everlasting hell. We're dealing with big stuff here. Parents, I exhort you. Take this stuff seriously as your children and in their their movement towards a credible profession of faith. This isn't just a, a journey of a program. And all of us, please, God, Pray for us and for the church of Jesus Christ. For this truth, this table that I just went through, it's true. It's a fact. It's not just an opinion. And it's a fact for everyone. Praise be to God. Amen.